So I'm happy to share with us this morning. Um, I've been waiting on the Lord all week, and I mentioned to Kathy um, as I was praying and waiting on the Lord yesterday for this service, um, I just felt kind of like this um, discouragement, this collective discouragement. And I, at first I thought it was just for me, and then I thought, you know, I, I think what I'm sensing, what I'm feeling is, is this larger discouragement. And I feel like when the Lord gives us that discernment and that understanding, it's something that he, he wants us to um, not leave us in that place of discouragement, but bring us out of that place of discouragement. There's an um, interesting thing about discouragement. Uh, in, in Exodus, Moses is talking to, uh, to the Lord and to the people of Israel, and it's great news, right? Moses has this great news about helping bring the people of Israel out of Egypt. And, but as he's, um, as they're walking out that promise, as they're living out that promise, things get harder before they get better. And in that time, in Exodus 6, um, the Lord is reminding Moses, hey, tell the people I'm going to take them out. Tell the people I'm going to rescue them. Tell the people I'm going to uh, bring them out of the land. And he went to tell the people, and it records in Exodus 6, 9, Moses reported all this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and harsh labor. And it just jumped out at me that, that, that discouragement can oftentimes affect our ability to hear can affect our ability to listen. When we're so discouraged, somebody could be sharing with us the best news, and all we can think about is the discouragement. All we can think about is what's not going right, and what misery I'm in at the moment, what difficulty I'm in at the moment. So discouragement can hinder our ability to hear. And I believe the Lord wants to lift discouragement from us, from our land, from our community, from us as individuals. And he wants us to be able to hear in new ways. So I'd, I'd like to do something this morning. Today we're going to talk about one more anchor. We've been in this series on anchors for the soul. And I want to talk about the anchor of love. And we've got a lot that we want to unpack in that. But I wanted to start by looking at Psalm 136 and um, have you participate and have you do something with me in the reading of Psalm 136. And we're going to read kind of the beginning verses and the ending verses. The middle verses are all about the story of God taking Israel out of Egypt. But I want to just look at these. And so if we could put up the first slide. I'm going to read the first phrase, and then I want you all to read the second phrase, his love endures forever. Can we do that? We can do that together if you're at home. Uh, it may seem cheesy, but do it on your couch. Do it in your chair, wherever you are. But let's engage this morning. I believe the Lord wants us to hear. He wants us to hear him this morning. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. His love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders. His love endures forever. Who by his understanding made the heavens. His love forever. Who spread out the earth upon the waters. 
who made the great lights, the sun to govern the day, the moon and stars to govern the night. He remembered us in our low estate. Endures forever. And freed us from our enemies. Endures forever. He gives food to every creature. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven. His love endures forever. Amen. Let's, let's pray together. Lord, we come this morning. And Lord, we come and we give thanks today for your enduring love. We just declare it this morning and we speak it out. We speak it out over our lives. We speak it out over our community. We speak it out over our land that your love endures forever. You've been faithful yesterday, today, and forever. Your love will remain. And Lord, we ask this morning that you would open up our hearts and open up our eyes. I pray in Jesus' name for discouragement to come off of us, discouragement to be lifted from us in Jesus' name. Lord, I pray that we would walk in new ways. We would live in new ways. We would stand in new confidence, confidence that starts and ends with your love that endures forever. Your love endures forever. Lord, we ask this morning as we look at at love being the anchor for our soul, you being the God of love, you being that definition of love, you being that embodiment of love. We ask God that today we would anchor in a new way to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This morning as we look at love, I just want to look at a couple of aspects because um, when, when the Bible says God is love, it kind of like opens up the amount of text that we could look at. It opens up the amount of things we could explore in the scripture because there's so much to it. But I want to remind us of a few things this morning. One, I want to remind us of God's love for humanity. Second, I want to look at some challenges, uh, seven, six or seven different challenges that we have when we think about love, things that can um, distort love or misalign love or get us to not see love the way God's intended. I want to remind us of our call to be people of love. And lastly, I want to remind us that love is our ultimate anchor. Amen? So just as some reminders this morning, I was going back to some of the most profound and basic scriptures in the Bible and looking at scriptures like John 3.16. In the message, Eugene Peterson translates it this way. He said, this is how much God loved the world. He gave his son, his one and only son. And this is why, so that no one need be destroyed. By believing in him, anyone can have a whole and lasting life. God didn't go to all the trouble of sending his son merely to point an accusing finger, telling the world how bad it was, he came to help to put the world right again. In Romans 5, we're reminded again of God's love. It says in verse 6, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, 
Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This love, this love of God, this love of God is enduring. This love of God is a foundation. This love of God is is meant to, to settle in our hearts and grow in our hearts. It's meant to expand. This love of God is meant to be our primary identifiers as people. This love of God has been given freely. This love of God has been shed and poured out for all people. That's one of the reasons we gather as a community is to declare that the love of God is for all people. That enduring love. God hasn't stopped loving us for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. It's been the story of God's love being poured out. In Ephesians 3, verse 14, I want to read um, this scripture that has to do with love being our foundation Paul's writing to the Ephesians, and he says, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Think about that for a second. That's where Christ dwells. Christ, Christ dwells in us, in our hearts. And Paul says this, and I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all of the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. This is our inheritance. This is our foundation. The Lord is, is uh, reminding us this morning that we're to be rooted and grounded in love, and that our journey in life is to discover the depth and the width and the breadth of God's love. That's, that's this, this love that grows, this love that matures, this love that, that just continues to deepen and deepen. The Lord's heart for us is to know this love that surpasses knowledge and that we can be filled with the measure of the fullness of God. The Lord wants us to be filled. So as I was reflecting on love, us being rooted and grounded in love and and. God's reminder to us to be anchored in love. I was also thinking about things that challenge my understanding and my anchoring in love. Things that, it's a little bit like um, you think about the analogy of, and we all like to watch movies where people fall in love. You notice most movies stop there because it's really complicated and challenging to continue to love. It's much easier to stop the movie once they've fallen in love, but it's another thing to endure in love and walk in that reality of love and 
and mature in that and walk through hard things. And so I think sometimes in our relationships with the Lord, we also have that same thing of like, we, we get to the honeymoon phase with God and then the next thing is as well, we all have to just kind of like screw up again so that we can come back to God and then have a honeymoon with God again. And, and we have this cycle of, of, of wanting this rescue to happen over and over again. And I believe the Lord wants to establish in us this enduring love. And so what are things that challenge that enduring love? What are things that sometimes need to be realigned in us because when we experience life, when we walk with the Lord, when we grow in depth and breadth and width and love, what, what are things that we encounter? So I thought of seven things. Um, it's not a spiritual thing. There could be six, there could be 22. Um, I just thought of seven. So I want to give us an idea of seven challenges that come in us not only understanding God's love for us, but also how is it that we represent God's love in the world? And how can that be distorted or how can that be misaligned? So I wanna look at these seven things and I'll go quickly. The first one I wanna look at that we can be challenged with that can distort the love of God is legalism. It's interesting when Jesus came and he starts speaking the Sermon on the Mount, he starts speaking to people who are familiar with religion. They're familiar with the laws. They're familiar with God's requirements. And he goes through starting in, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, and he says, I have a higher way. He calls his people to a higher way. Love is a higher way. And he says this, for I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. This is like a profound statement that he's making to people at that time. You're, you're saying, these are the most devout, these are the most religious people. And he's saying, I have a righteousness for you that surpasses these things. And then he goes on to demonstrate what that looks like. And he says this, and he has these series of things in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. And then he goes, but I tell you, anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And he goes on in the next one around adultery. He said, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. And he says, but I tell you, Anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in her heart. And he goes on to talk about divorce and oaths and revenge and enemies. And he, can, he, he says, you know the law, you know what the teachers say. And then he says, but I say. And he keeps elevating a higher standard. He keeps elevating love as a higher standard. He keeps elevating things that are above the legalism of the time. Jesus is getting at the heart level in the Sermon on the Mount. He's challenging his followers to look beyond the legalism that they'd become accustomed to and to look at the heart that God was calling them to have. Legalism will end up distorting God's heart. It will end up creating human-made positions of right and wrong. Legalism is convenient for us because it allows us to apply judgment without having to consider anything further. When we walk in legalism as a practice, we eliminate the activity of God in our lives to convict us of sin, to bring us to repentance. 
and to have us walk as righteous people. We exchange righteousness for conformance. So this is one thing that gets confused in love and can get confused in over time as we walk with the Lord. We can exchange the righteousness that he's given to us and the standard of love that he's called us to for conformance and for legalism. God's love's always going to hold us to a higher standard. I love a story, one of Corky's favorite stories that he likes to tell, uh, and he's telling it from someone else. So, like, I'm, this is one of those telephone games where the story's been passed down a little while, so I'm just going to attribute it to Corky. Uh, but there's a, a gentleman who um, becomes a follower of Jesus, and he's being discipled by someone that, that he knows, and uh, he comes to that guy and he says, man, I've really been convicted, and the guy happens to own a bar. He owns a bar, and he begins following Jesus, and he says, man, this Jesus, following Jesus, having a relationship with Jesus, I've become really convicted in my business. He says, I'm watering down the alcohol that I serve to people, and he's like, and the Lord's convicted me that I should stop watering it down. I'm stealing from people. I love the story because it illustrates the Holy Spirit working at a higher level, the Holy Spirit coming in and calling him to a higher level of righteousness. Maybe not in the way that guy who was discipling him expected. So one distortion of our love can be elevating legalism above love and asking God to bring that higher standard and that higher level. He's interested in our hearts. The second one I want to look at is carnality. And I want to give you a scripture to illustrate what I'm saying. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is talking with his disciples, telling them about things that are going to happen. And he says this in verse 21. It says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And I want to pause there for just a second. Why, why did Peter say this? Peter obviously didn't want to be a tool of Satan. Like, he's like, I, that's not what he was thinking. Peter's thinking, man, this is not how I see the story going. Jesus, I love you. I don't want to see you handed over. He's responding in a way that's very human. And Jesus says that. You're, you're responding out of merely human concerns. And we have that in our relationship with the Lord. There's things where we're going to respond out of our own desires. And they, they don't always necessarily line up with what the Lord has. He goes on to say this. So he says, don't, you don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciples, disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. All of a sudden, there's a new emergence of this revelation of who Jesus is. 
And we, we can at times respond in our carnality. No, God, you don't work that way. This can't happen. That's not how we want things to happen. Love calls us, and love is about losing our lives. Love is about laying down our human concerns. Love is about taking up our cross. Love is about denying ourselves. And sometimes we hold God to a human standard and say, why don't you conform to our human standard? And that can distort our love. It can, when we don't have this understanding, when we don't have this understanding, our love can become confused. We distort the love of God when we lessen the call of discipleship to what makes us comfortable and what aligns with our reasoning. There's nothing comfortable with us losing our lives. This was what Peter could not comprehend. This is what the carnal mind cannot comprehend. It doesn't make sense to lay down your life. The world's upside down. So legalist thinking is where we impose laws on people for how they relate to God. Carnality imposes laws on God for how he interacts with us. Either way, we're distorting something. We're misaligning who God is. And part of us growing in our love and our foundations of love is having a capacity to understand that we're prone to both. We're prone to legalism or we're prone to carnality and love has a higher way. Third area of challenge that we have in our love, things that can distort or misalign our love, is how we walk through suffering. When we encounter suffering, when we walk through suffering, when we go through difficult things, our reaction is to be, where is God? Why is this happening to me? Why is God punishing me? Corey Tin Boom says, there's no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. You know, the Bible has a lot to say, and Jesus had a lot to say about suffering. And it wasn't that he wanted to bring suffering or that he's the source of suffering. He's not. God is not the source of suffering. God wants to, in a little bit, we're going to talk about our role in humanity is to address suffering. So he doesn't want suffering, but he recognizes in our lives, we will have suffering. And suffering sometimes is that thing that all of a sudden then confuses us. And it's like, well, what about God's love? Why am I suffering if God is loving? In Romans 5, there's two parts to this uh, verses 1 through 5. It says this, Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Let's stop there. That's where we want to live. We boast in the hope of the glory of God. That's like, yes, that aligns with my perception of God's love. We boast in the hope of the glory of God. That's perfect. So let's not do verse 3. And he goes on to say, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Oh, wait, I didn't want that part. I didn't want part B. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. 
God's love is being poured out in the midst of our suffering. God's love is being poured out and we're creating perseverance. That's part of enduring love. This anchor of love is we're learning how to endure. And endurance creates character and character creates hope in us. He says it again in Romans 8. Here's another scripture. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirits that we are God's children. All right, I like that. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. There it is again, a reminder that we're, we're participating with Christ in our sufferings. Go, Hebrews 5 talks about Jesus' suffering. It even says in Hebrews 5 that Jesus learned obedience from things that he suffered. In John 15, the first part of John is all about God's love for us and us abiding in the vine and, and our love for one another. And verse 17 ends, remember the root command, love one another. And then he provides part B, starting in verse 18. He says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. And he goes in verse 20, he says, a servant is not greater than his master. So part of Jesus' reminder for us this morning and an encouragement or challenge for us this morning is don't allow suffering to distort God's love for us. And I'm not talking about suffering that the Lord wants to stop. There is suffering that happens in our lives that the Lord wants to stop. The Lord wants to, to heal us. He wants to cast out demons. The Lord does not want us to walk in abuse or hurt. God doesn't want us to suffer. But there, there's no escaping death and loss and challenge and suffering. We suffer as people. And the Lord's reminder to us this morning is that he is with us in our suffering. Suffering is a call to greater intimacy with Jesus. Not to raise the question of like, God doesn't love me anymore. Where has God gone? It's this call to greater intimacy with him. Graham Cook says, God, he's talking about God and he says, he's our keeper and our deliverer. He's our keeper as well as our deliverer. And oftentimes we want to focus on God's just always about delivering. He wants to deliver us. He wants to deliver us. And sometimes he just wants to keep us. He wants to hold us. In Ephesians, it says, stand firm. After having done everything you've done, just stand. The Lord wants to keep us. And sometimes we can confuse, well, God doesn't love me because he's not delivering me. And he's like, no, I'm here. I'm keeping you. I'm walking with you. Jesus suffered. And it's a paradox. It's a paradox that he wants to be with us in our suffering and he wants to deliver us from our suffering. And in this time when we suffer, we can sometimes confuse that with God's love. Suffering can be an opportunity for us to clo grow close to God. He's experienced everything we go through. Death, loss, disappointment, betrayal. Suffering's not a sign that God's mad at us, that we're doing something wrong. We're called 
to, to join with Christ in suffering. Dietrich Bonhoeffer had this quote, and he was, he was a, a pastor who was imprisoned in World War II. And he says, only the suffering God can help. This idea that the Lord is with us in our suffering and that he has suffered too. All right, I'm going to go quickly to the fourth. Another challenge to our love. In Matthew 24, verse 12, it says, uh, and it's talking about this time, and I'm just going to read it starting in verse 9. And Jesus is talking about times to come. And some of those times happened 30 or 40 years after Jesus left, and some of those times may be happening now. He says, then you will be handed over to, to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. This is good news he's sharing with them. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Another challenge or thing that can happen for our, in, in our relationship with the Lord and understanding love is that our love can grow cold. We can see an increase of wickedness. We can see an increase of challenges. We can hear all of these prophets and false prophets around us and things that are being said. And we need discernment in this time. And in 1 John, discernment is tied to the understanding of God as love. The whole book of 1 John, where so much of understanding God's love for us and our love for one another is also dealing with discerning false teachings of those times where Jesus is not exalted, where the love of God is missing. So in this time, we're called to stand firm in our love. We, let's not let our love grow cold. We, have, we all have opportunities for our love to become cold. But the Lord says, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. So that's a challenge in our times, isn't it? Letting our love continue to remain hot for the Lord. Three more, and we'll be done with this. Uh, religious activities and good deeds. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul challenges people to not confuse our religious activities and our good deeds with love. Love can become distorted in religious activities and good works, can't it? Are we more passionate about our gifts and service than we are about the people we're serving? People we will know we're followers of Jesus by our love. In 1 Corinthians 13, it talks about if we speak in tongues of men and angels but don't have love, we're a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If we have a gift of prophecy, can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have faith that can move mountains, but I do not have love, I have nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I might boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. So a challenge to love in our time can be good activity, religious activity. The last one I'm going to comment on this morning is at the bottom of this chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. One of the things that can challenge our understanding of love and receiving love is 
and, and, and he says this at the end, and I want to be really um, clear in how I say this. It says in verse, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12, it says this, For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Let's leave the, let's leave the slide up for a second. I think one of the things that can happen in our times is we can demand clarity. We can demand that we don't see part in part. We don't see as in a mirror. We don't see. This, this passage that Paul's uh, preaching about or writing about, it's around uh, people exercising gifts of prophecy and, and the importance of the gifts of prophecy and all that stuff being worked out in the lives of people. And he's like, even with prophecy, even with all of the revelation that the Holy Spirit brings, amid all of this prophetic input, Paul asserts that we still know in part. I think the love of God can get distorted in us when we assume that the Holy Spirit's going to make everything known to us all the time, that we're always going to have clarity. We're always going to know everything. It can be, create a belief in us that God's withholding from us. This idea that we see in part, we can be upset with God. God, you're withholding from us. So we have a tendency to want to explain everything, to remove mystery to create answers for all of life's scenarios. And then when a new scenario occurs, our religion no longer works. Love is identified as one of the things that remains. Love remains, and we see in part. So in our time, we can have a demand for clarity, a demand for full understanding. And that demand for clarity can distort our understanding and our receiving of God's love. Love will remain. It's the thing that will flourish, but love can flourish in mystery, not necessarily in certainty. If we operate from a place of love being something that remains, then we can properly position prophecy and knowledge and understanding in our lives. We know in part, and God's not withholding from us. He's not withholding anything from us. He's poured out his love on us. God loves us and wants us to enter into mystery with him. Love will remain and love will sustain. So we've just gone through six areas of things that can distort our understanding of love. Legalism, carnality, suffering. And there's three more that I forgot already. I'm sure you guys remembered them. Religious activities and good deeds, an increase in wickedness, and a demand for clarity. These things can challenge our walking in love. We're called to be people of love. I was reading yesterday, I get this magazine from World Outreach. It's, a, it's an organization that's serving in 60 different countries. And they were telling stories in this COVID time in which address, they're addressing suffering in the world. It told of people in Thailand um, going to the hospitals and grabbing HIV medication for people and taking it to their homes so that they don't have the chance of getting exposed to COVID where they to go in the hospitals. Talked about families distributing food to the very poor in India, 300 families a day. 
Talked about people in Japan who are now participating in hearing the gospel through Zoom who would never go to churches before. There's all sorts of things and ways in which the Lord is causing us to love and to address suffering and care and love in this time. The early church addressed things like poverty and famine and racism and sexism. They addressed these things in the early church. We're called to be people of love. Love is our identity. Love is our calling. Every time they talked about what's the greatest command, Jesus talked about it. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. There was always this calling of those two things going together. We're called both to receive the love of God as well as to love others, to love fully. In John 15, he says, make yourself at home in my love and love one another with the way I've loved you. He says his root command is to love one another. In 1 John, all throughout 1 John, he keeps talking about this connection of loving God and loving one another. How can you say if you love, that you love God if you don't love one another? If you can't love the people you can see, how can you love people that you can't see? How can you love God who you can't see? In 1 John 4, verse 19, says we love because he first loved us. And 2 Corinthians, Paul says, we're compelled by the love of God. I know I'm jumping through. I had a lot of scripture, and uh, I'm going quickly. Raylan's trying to keep up over there, I know. But I want to remind us this morning of our calling to be people of love. The last thing I want to leave us with this morning in this anchor of love is in Romans 8. And I want to read starting in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is our promise. This is our anchor. We started reading this morning about the Lord. His love endures forever. His love endures forever. Paul reminds us nothing is going to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that can be, as Sarah mentioned last week, that story in the Old Testament of the guys being thrown in the fire, the fiery furnace, and they go, our God can rescue us. But if he doesn't, that's okay too. The Lord's love has been poured out on us. It's been lavished on us. And nothing's going to separate us from that love. And he's called us to be people who walk in that love. I've, earlier this week, I was looking at some statistics, and they've done studies on the sinking of the Titanic. I know, it's, I'm going to just pull this in for just a second. They've done lots of studies on who was saved and who 
perished in the sinking of the Titanic. 2,200 people on the boat and about 1,500 perished. And one of the statistics, and there's all sorts of studies that have been done on this because of the time it took for the boat to go down, and they compare it to other boat sinkings, and they look at the different classes, and first class was the most rescued, and third class was the least rescued. But one of the statistics, they look at men and women and children and all sorts of studies that have been done on this. But the thing, the statistic that jumped out at me the most was that the crew, the people who manned the ship, the, the people who worked the ship, they had the lowest survival rate. They had a 23% survival rate. 77% of the crew of the Titanic perished. All of the other first class Second class, third class, they all had a much larger survival rate, but the crew had the lowest. And it made me think about us, our role as followers of Jesus in this world. We're called to be the crew of this world. We're called to be the crew, and the Lord has given us an abundance, and the Lord has given us so much, and he's lavished his love on us. And he's also called us to lay down our lives for others. And so if our survival rate is the lowest, that's okay. That's okay. Because nothing's going to separate us from the love of God. Nothing is going to separate us from the love of God. So let's pray and we'll end. Lord, we thank you this morning that we anchor to you, the one who loved us first. You loved us first. And your love endures, and your love endures, and your love endures. And we tap in this morning, and we just receive that love today. And I pray, Lord, where we have discouragement, that you would come and you would bring refreshment. Lord, that you would give us eyes to see, just like the people of Israel, Lord. We know the story. You brought them out. You brought them out, but they couldn't see at the time. Lord, nothing's going to separate us from your love. Whether it's life or death, nothing's going to separate us from your love. And I pray, God, for our land and our community and the people that we're around. Lord, help us to see those that are suffering and to come and to serve, to come and be the crew. Lord, let us be the crew of our land. You've called us to serve. You've called us to love. Or give us that opportunity to love our land. In Jesus' name, amen.